0: You know one of my favorite psalms is psalm 19 that speaks to us about how god speaks to all humanity in a very unique and powerful way we are told there the heavens declare the glory of god and the firmament shows forth his handiwork day unto day pours forth speech night unto night Reveals knowledge. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their utterances to the ends of the world. You know, when people will ask the question, "Why do you believe that there is a God?" You know, the answer to that is one that we should really have ready in these increasingly skeptical times. Uh, the first reason that we should believe in a God is that we look around at the creation that He's made. Do we see randomness and disorder? or do we see the signs of intense and immense design? Secondly, we can look within. Uh, We can see that we as human beings have this uh, irresistible, insatiable need for purpose and meaning, for love and acceptance in this world. Well, if all we are is a nice roll of some chemical dice, why in the world would we ever develop a sense for purpose and meaning in a meaningless existence? Uh, We're made in the image and likeness of God, and we just can't get away from it. But thirdly, we can look back in time. We can see that we are a visited planet, that God himself walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ and proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt by rising from the dead. But for our purpose tonight, I'd call your attention back to that first aspect of God showing us through the creation who he is and what he is all about. In fact in the end times, the last days, God is going to put on a show, if you will, if you want to use that term, uh, to get mankind's attention, as we say, of cosmic proportions. And that's what we're going to be getting into tonight in Revelation chapter 6.
1: And of course, so none of you are left behind Pun intended. Uh,
0: (laughs) That's our prayer, by the way. (laughs) None of you would be left The way we're
1: going to be approaching this text tonight, and again, I know that the book of Revelation brings with it no shortage of controversy, but we're going to be handling Revelation chapter 6 as a chronological overview of the plagues of the tribulation as the entire book details them. There are those who say Revelation 6 covers the entire tribulation. There are those who say this all means nothing regards to the future. It's all reference to the past. For our purposes here tonight, we are going to treat the text as if Revelation 6 is followed by chapters 8 through 11, the trumpet judgments, and chapters 15 through 22 in the uh, bold judgments the millennial kingdom and the new creation in that order. Now, uh, if you want Further clarification on other points of view, we'll be happy to clarify why we hold our view as well as to represent their own on our radio program. Hopefully, the technical issues we experience today will be resolved, but just so that you're all following along and those listening in the future to these broadcasts understand uh, saying, oh, that's not what the text says or that's not how I was taught it, this is how we're teaching it and why. Because in the text itself, a very plain reading of the text along with other examples of sequential judgments in God's word, like Exodus 7 through 12, for example, or, uh, well, yeah, 7 yep. through 12, for example, yep. the plagues of Egypt. We do not believe that they were overviewed by one plague and then recapped with details in between. We do not believe that the plagues of the Exodus were symbolic uh arguments that Moses had with Pharaoh once upon a time. We believe these were literal, tangible, supernatural interventions in nature and were exactly as described. That's our, to use the fancy word, hermeneutic for how we're interpreting our the Our default
0: text. position, if you will.
1: So, yeah. noting that point as well, the uh, start of this chapter or I guess this section uh, is an unfortunate one because I was dying to hear Pastor Bo let and you get into this last week because he had an insight in particular, I wanted to hear. But verse 12 begins with this. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. Now, just as a quick recap for those of you joining us or wanting to know where we are, the seal judgments of Revelation chapter six are a series of judgments as stated on the world from the heavenly perspective but viewing them making tangible impacts on the world that we live in
0: today. And they coincide with an event that we saw in Revelation chapter five. That is the lamb, Jesus, being deemed worthy to open the scrolls and loose its seals. We saw the scroll was a scroll that was written on the outside and in. And in Jewish culture, Roman culture that day, that literally meant that it was uh, like a mortgage, if you will. It was a, uh, a, a bill that told you how much you owed in a sense. As a reference to the book of Zachariah. Yeah, and, and so we see that Jesus himself was worthy. No other human being was worthy, but Jesus was worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. In other words, what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 6 and following is the repossession, in a sense, of planet Earth. Uh, Mankind forfeited the dominion that we had over Earth when we fell. We handed, in a sense, over to Satan, who became the little G-God of this age, Uh, runs the world system, certainly doesn't own the world, but uh, certainly has his sway and influence in this world, and he's not going to go without a fight. And so in Revelation chapter 6, we see how God, in a sense, is taking back this world by judging the fallen world system and the people who follow it uh, incrementally. Uh, why the incremental aspect of this? Why doesn't he just come back, uh, you know, crack the sky, you know, show up? you know, set up shop. Well, again, he has given uh, these individuals who are still in rebellion against him every opportunity to be able to join the right side, if you will. And yet in the midst of all of that, we see God's love, obviously wanting to save people, but we also see his justice, that he has given mankind, in a sense, the greatest form of judgment you could ever imagine. It's been said there's two great tragedies in life, not getting what you want and getting it. Uh, we've basically, as a species, told God to go peddle his papers for a long, long time. Leave us alone, God. We can manage it ourselves. Well, God, in a sense, uh, incrementally allows man to see what life is like without him overseeing it. And so uh, just as man didn't want the true Messiah, they wanted a Messiah that would solve all their problems, leave their heart alone. They got one. And the Antichrist is prophesied as rising here. Mankind says uh, that, uh, you know, I I want to do things my way. I I want my will to be done. James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? But the wars within your members, you know, you lust and desire, you do not obtain. You, you, again, uh, exploit other people to get your way. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask amiss. In other words, you go to anyone but God to try to meet your need. And peace is taken from the earth. If you don't want God's peace, you can try to work peace out yourself. Never works. Scarcity on the earth. God is a God who is generous. He loves to bless his people, but if we don't want his blessing, we can go without that. And so we see this scarcity, this famine, if you will, uh, overtaking the world, but also uh, a picture of economic uh, inequity that the rich aren't going to suffer like the poor do during this time because their fineries, their niceties like oil and wine are not going to be affected. Finally, widespread death, the pale horse comes, and we are told that a a quarter of the earth is going to be taken out, not just with the sword. We could imagine that war coming on the planet, but also with hunger, with death and the beasts of the earth. Uh, You know, sometimes I've always wondered what would happen. If the animals got organized, <laughs> there was a famous uh, cartoon called The Far Side uh, where they showed uh, this fellow uh, at one of those sea parks, and he's uh, up on a platform holding out uh, a fish, and then you see a, uh, an orca down below and a porpoise, and the orca says, to the porpoise, uh, anchovy nothing, this time I'm going for the whole schmear, <laughs> he's going to take the guy out. So you kind of wonder what would happen if suddenly God lifted that restriction, if you will. Uh, that he has placed upon even the animal kingdom. Uh, and, uh, and occasionally we see signs of all of that. I
1: note that the outcome of the scarcity of food and the economic disparity will play a role in this, the widespread violence being as much domestic as it is foreign, that costing the lives of, on average, maybe around 2 billion people. It's something we have never seen yeah. in any war, war since.
0: Then the, the scene shifts to heaven. When the fifth seal is broken, we see a group of martyrs up there uh, in front of the altar asking God, you know, how long is he going to wait until their blood is avenged on the earth? And
1: that tells us not only in the heavenly state that a desire for vengeance is not sinful, but the proper place to bring it is where they do before the throne of God. They are told to wait until what, we're, what we just read, basically, and what we're going to continue to read. Yeah. But this answer towards their martyrdom, the scapegoats towards God's people, Jewish or otherwise, the blaming of the world's woes on those who don't conform to this world's ways will not only continue but only be amplified when the satanic representative known as the man of sin, the beast from the sea, the cruel king of the north, the Assyrian, take your pick, we like Antichrist, is in power but we also are reminded who's uh, actually still on the throne.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the, the fascinating thing in all of this and you know, the, the, where we kind of left it uh, because there was so much to get into in the sixth seal here is that uh, we will run into people who will say things like, well, we might be in the last days, the end times, you know, maybe you know, we're seeing prophecies come to pass. But I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll just wait and see. And when the rapture happens, if everybody disappears, then I'm going to know the Bible's true, and then I'll give my life to Christ and I'll follow him. Well, here we see that there are going to be all kinds of people that are going to make a decision after the rapture to come to Christ, but they're going to have to pay for that decision with their lives. And the challenge is if you can't live for the Lord or don't want to live for the Lord in this age of grace, Right where, especially in our current c- circumstance, situation, the world we live in, uh, the price you pay for uh, following Christ might be not being invited to a party, or have someone call you a Jesus freak, or you know, people going out of your way to make things tougher at work. Uh, our level of persecution is pretty minor in comparison to what the Antichrist has in store. And the the, the challenging question, of course, is this. If you can't live for the Lord in this age of grace we're in right now, what makes you think you're going to die for the Lord uh, when it's going to cost you your life? So, And note that this is going to escalate
1: as well, because we're still seven chapters or so away from the abomination that causes desolation and the mark of the beast. Yeah, And that's when it's going to be enforced, yeah. not
0: just permitted. Yeah. So, so, so having said that, things uh, seem very tough on a horizontal perspective here. But we ain't seen nothing
1: yet, right? We just read that an earthquake is going to happen, and it also mentions that the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, so black. Verse 12 is where we're at. Yeah, and the moon became like blood. Now, there have been people, well-intended as they may be, who have tried to diminish the supernatural nature of this passage and say, oh, what's being described is a solar and lunar eclipse. The best way to respond to that is to ask them to repeat themselves slowly, a solar eclipse and lunar eclipse. I don't know if those of you who have taken astrology classes or astronomy uh, <laughs> are going to I don't know about your horoscope. Stay, has stay to do away with from
0: astrology. But, but
1: astronomy <laughs> if you are familiar with what a solar eclipse looks like and we have a photo for you here for your uh, viewing don't worry you don't need special glasses uh, the no, lunar, that's eclipse, a lunar
0: eclipse uh, the same point
1: eclipse. is being made if you've ever shined a flashlight on your hand there is the room.
0: solar eclipse.
1: Yeah. Okay I'll, I'll go back and I'll explain what I first intended to. The solar eclipse is when the moon and the sun are basically between each other the moon and the sun and the earth are in that order a lunar eclipse on the other hand noting the corona of the sun excuse me uh, we have a new reference to the corona but they named that virus as such because of the streaks of light that shoot off of it it's the same idea the um i
0: guess light and aura of the sun is what we see afterwards whereas in lunar just, just a fascinating side detail here You know, we get a total eclipse of the sun and it's fascinating that the moon is positioned in precisely the right distance to make a complete obscurance of the disk of the sun.
1: And also note that every year around the world there's yeah. a solar eclipse somewhere yeah because that positioning is just going to happen we only think it's significant because it's oh the the shaded part is going to be on our side of the globe now
0: yeah and, but a, and if you again want to go into uh, this in more detail i'd encourage you to go uh, to uh, answers in genesis there's a fascinating book called our created moon uh, that that speaks of uh, what life would be like if we didn't have the moon, we didn't have the moon that we have, it wasn't at the distance that we are at, how the theories about how we got our moon all fall apart. Uh, Fascinating, Uh, every time I look at the moon, I see the fingerprints of God, but go ahead.
1: A lunar eclipse, on the other hand, is if you've ever shined a flashlight on your hand and have seen the red hue shining through, that's essentially what's happening in the sunlight through the Earth. Now, we have a few diagrams for you. Don't fall asleep on us. But the point being made is just this. To say that a lunar and solar eclipse are happening at the same time is literally impossible. First, noting the solar eclipse, we need to note, okay, lunar eclipse. Solar eclipse, commit, there we go. The solar eclipse is when the Earth the moon and the sun are set in that order. And they have the fancy name set, but those who are listening note the moon is between us and the sun. Whereas a lunar eclipse, the moon is on the exact opposite side, that the light shining through the earth is what's making this moon, that, or the light shining through the earth is what makes the moon that reddish color. So noting then these details, you either need to have two moons at the same time, right, or something funny's happening here yeah and that's the point that we're making whenever the sun is referred to as going dark or the moon turning to blood In this context, not a solar or lunar eclipse, but these specific references in language, it's referencing the book of Joel chapter two and verse 31, where we read, I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion, Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said among the remnant, who the Lord calls. Now, hopefully, hands are being raised about Peter referencing this passage in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where he claimed that these things are being fulfilled. And also, for those of you who have done your homework, you might also be wondering, well, Joel 2 is talking about the Babylonian invasion. So where do we fit into that, this? Well, the answer is yes not just because of dual fulfillments, but also noting what did Peter, John, (laughs) and Joel's comments all have in common. It was the wrath of God. It was judgment being poured out on this earth, whether it was the Holy Spirit in a positive sense or this, we're talking about a lot of people here being affected by God's direct intervention. And so if we hear these referencing, the sun being darkened, the moon being turned to blood, we're getting a calling card to the Jewish mind of what the wrath of God is. So when they're reading these passages and say other instances of scripture, when Jesus was being crucified, for example, why did Matthew, speaking to a Jewish audience, make a specific point to mention in chapter 27 and verse 45, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this deserves a study all on its own. Right. But... The point is very plain. Jesus, quoting Psalm 22 and verse 1, Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God. How do we know that? The same way we, and everyone on the planet, knows in Revelation chapter 6 what's happening. The sun goes dark, but not for the usual reason. And for those of you who are wondering, the sixth hour, their hour counting started at 6 a.m. So from the sixth hour, noon, by our reckoning, to the ninth hour, 3, that's usually when things are bright, not dark. Right. So something unnatural happened there. Now, it doesn't mention the moon turning to blood. Why? Because it was daytime where Jesus was being
0: crucified. And no normal solar eclipse lasts three hours.
1: Yes. And noting that point as well, (laughs) I will qualify this when it's the case. This is an opinion treated as such. I believe that the mentioning of the sun and moon both being affected by this judgment is in order to specify this is a global Phenomena that the earthquake and the judgment of God being identified here are global events. Now, that's my opinion. You can read other insights into this. Just make sure you treat it accordingly. However, this is a fact. Anyone who uses blood moons or solar eclipses to predict the date of the end times or the rapture or the tribulation has demonstrated that they're probably qualified to teach at American universities. They have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs)
0: Any more to add on verse 12? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, it's, it, it, again, getting into the whole idea of blood moons, uh, back in 2014, 2015, some noted prophecy teachers went to town on this. Uh, one John Hagee, very prominent, uh, talked about the idea of blood moons, that is, lunar eclipses uh, being manifest in what they called a tetrad. That is, four lunar eclipses would happen in a row over a six month period of time, and that they would coincide with Jewish holidays. Uh, they would say that uh, every time that this has happened in history, and they would point to five different times in history, some, uh, some significant event happened in the history of Israel. And uh, that may be true, but there were also, I think, three or four other times where it happened and nothing happened in relationship. To the history of Israel. And the, the, the problem gets into this, and we really want to exhort you to have this perspective as you study prophecy. Yes, in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of symbolic stuff, for sure. But the book of Revelation is really good about telling you when we're dealing with symbolism. It's really good about saying, and I saw a sign, or I, there was a great uh, appearance in the heavens, that sort of thing. When we don't get these, hey, we're getting into symbolism here, heads up. We should always default back to the normal sense of the, the, the text. When the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. Exactly. And, and, and that's why people come up with these, oh, why does everybody have a different theory about the book of Revelation? Well, may I suggest to you, uh, no disrespect intended, But when you start reading into the text, instead of reading out of the text, you always set yourself up for problems. When it says, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of air, and the moon became like blood. Uh, There is uh, a possibility that we are talking about an earthquake That could be related to a volcanic uh, situation that was going on. That would be that the atmosphere around the earth is going to be affected, and so the sun would be darkened, the moon would turn, became black as sackcloth there, the moon became like blood. It seems, though, that this is a direct supernatural intervention of God. Because if we're talking about just atmospheric dust, if you will, atmospheric dust can do a number on you. I've been told that if you lived in like the sixth century uh, after Christ, it was one of the worst times ever to live because there was a huge volcano that went off in Iceland that created uh, these horrible conditions where crops failed and there was starvation and disease and all of this because of this volcano. It it diminished the the global temperature of the earth. But this is not what, what is being talked about here because we are talking about something that is so profound that the sun doesn't just become obscured and you know, it's kind of a little you know, diminished, kind of like a really smoggy day in L.A. No, it says it becomes like sackcloth of hair. In, in other words, the blackest it could possibly be. You can't see the sun at all. And the moon became like blood. Whenever the moon would even peek through, it would just have this, this horrible reddish color to it. And it's God's heavenly heads up saying that things are getting pretty intense. When the Bible speaks of great earthquakes, by the way, boy, just uh, even the last two weeks, we saw that that is nothing uh, to sneeze at. You probably heard about the uh, volcano uh, going off uh, south of the island of Tonga in the Pacific Ocean. Well, that associated earthquake that, that happened with it, they measured it, and uh, apparently the largest Uh, explosive device ever triggered by mankind was an invention of the Soviet Union called the Tsar Bomba. You know, it was like the King of Bombs. And the Tsar Bomba put out an explosion that was 50 megatons. Uh, In other words, uh, 50 megatons of TNT would be the equivalent of what went off there. It was the largest explosive device in the history of mankind. Apparently, the volcano going off at Tonga uh, created a, an impact, an explosive force of nearly 150 megatons.
1: So three Soviet-grade nuclear bombs, and it's just because the planet decided to get up and move.
0: So, you know, again, when the Bible speaks about an earthquake, um, you know, one of the reasons that we have our assistant pastor Bo Willett on staff here is in uh, 1994, there was the Northridge earthquake in Southern California. Now, growing up in Southern California, uh, you know, we are a little blasé about earthquakes. If it's not above a four, we don't even pay attention. But this one was really something. It was almost up to a seven. In fact, Bo and Sylvia's apartment was less than a half mile from the epicenter in Northridge. And the force of this earthquake, believe it or not, was so intense... It raised the height of the San Gabriel Mountains on the north side of the San Fernando Valley, three feet, the entire mountain range. Now, that was a significant earthquake, and boy, ask Bo to describe what it was like for him and Sil to go through that uh, that earthquake, Uh, it it was really a hair-raising experience. They barely got out with their lives, their apartment collapsing, gas mains going, and it was like the apocalypse in a lot of ways. But not like this is like the apocalypse. When God talks about a great earthquake, he means it. He means that this earthquake is going mean, to be something. We're going to see it described in a little bit further detail later on.
1: But if that wasn't bad enough, not only is the ground doing weird stuff, it says in verse 13, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. I'm sure we're familiar with uh, heavy Palo Verde pollen falling during the monsoon season. It's noting this bombardment of literally stars, the word asterisks, which is light sources in Greek. Now, I only i am going to mention this because I've had very dumb conversations about this with atheists on the internet. We want to make sure you're prepared for it. If someone says, oh, so it's saying multiple suns are going to crash into the earth. It's a scientific error in the Bible. The word meteor, actually let's start with asteroid, is about 200 years old. It was invented by Stephen Watson and a few Centuries, maybe three, before that, the term meteor was invented from the Latin word meteoron, which referred to just anything weird in the atmosphere. It means lofty. So if we're asking the question, stars, why does it translate that word? Well, what else are you going to describe in the first century AD for a light source in the heavens, in the sky, in the atmosphere? Now, these things bombard in the earth, we're more privileged than most, if I look at the pockmarks on the moon and uh, other certain celestial objects, uh, from these m- meteor bombardments. We tend to just default to the movies, or on rare occasions, recall back in Siberia,
0: where one happened to make its way through. Yeah, the Tunguska event uh, is it, that happened in 1908, uh, apparently was an airburst of an asteroid. It didn't make it all the way to Earth. But it exploded in the atmosphere, and it leveled 830 square miles of forest in Siberia when it went off. If you want to look this up online, you can, but there are eyewitness accounts of uh, some of the... It was a very obscure, very lightly populated place in Siberia where this happened, but there were a few people there. One individual who was 40 miles away from where the actual entrance of this uh, meteor uh, or an, a small asteroid, I guess they believe it is now, uh, broke up in the upper atmosphere and exploded. Talked about uh, seeing this incredible light flash. He talked about how it seemed like the atmosphere, the sky, the clouds uh, parted uh, from uh, you know almost like uh, to each side, like being rolled up like a scroll. We're going to see this in just a second. And then the heat burst from this was so intense, it began to set his clothing on fire. He had to pull off his shirt to avoid being burned by the whole thing. So when one of these things hits the earth, it's very, very impressive. You know, I've shared a couple times about uh, driving back from a football game in Southern California when I was at the U of A in uh, the late 70s. Uh, We were about uh, 40 miles or so outside of Yuma on the California side of the border, uh, driving back late. And it was my turn to drive, and uh, driving ahead, I saw what appeared to be a, uh, a shooting star going down, but it got brighter and brighter. And then suddenly, it was like night turned into day in front of me, as far as the eye could see. And for about three or four seconds, you could see color, you could see the mountains, and the di- it was like daytime. And my first thought when I saw this was, oh my gosh, they nuked Phoenix. I, I thought it was like one of the, how one of those survival deals got going. Now, I remember grabbing the radio and tuning around to see if there were radio stations on or if they were all off the air, but all the radio stations were still on there. Well, it turns out this thing was a bolide meteorite, which is a uh, meteor that's essentially made up of a big chunk of sulfur. When these hit the atmosphere, they go off like a flare, if you will. That bolide that hit the atmosphere uh, as I was watching on that night did that same effect of turning night into day a distance from Mexico City in the south of the Canadian border. These things are very, very impressive when they hit the atmosphere. And this thing didn't even come close to hitting the ground like the Tunguska event. There's also another uh, event that uh, scientists have done some some digging into where uh, they believe that perhaps even a small comet or a fragment of a comet Uh, exploded over uh, the area we know today as Ohio, uh, way on back probably about 300 AD or so. Uh, They determined from evidence that uh, this region of up to 9,200 square miles was set ablaze by the explosion. Uh, That's an area more than 10 times the size of the Tunguska event. Uh, And uh, there are several Algonquin and and Iroquois tribes which are descended from the people that went through all this. They have oral histories which harken back to all of this. You know, for instance, uh, the Miami Indians tell of a horned serpent that flew through the sky and dropped rocks onto the land before plummeting into the river. Uh, The Shawnee referred to a sky panther that had the power to tear down the forest. The Ottawa Indians talk of a day when the sun fell from the sky, and when a comet hits the outer atmosphere, it would have exploded like a nuclear bomb. So we've seen these things happen before. The big question is, why don't we see them more often? Well, let's go on and and finish. It says, then the, the sky receded up as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, notice that every category of human being, every caste, every part of the social structure is mentioned here. Every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Well, a couple of things we need to know about this.
1: Well, first of all, it's a quotation of Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4 specifically. You can read it on your own time. Secondly, this is nothing new as far as describing major earthquakes, moving islands and mountains. You mentioned that the North Ridge very locally did that in a dramatic fashion, but we're noting every mountain and island. It's further reinforcement that this is a global event. But noting the third point, and a very interesting one at that, these people are willfully doing what it says not to do in the... The wrath of the lamb earthquake emergency pamphlet. If you're going (laughs) to be facing rocks from the sky and the rocks that are already supposed to be sitting still under your feet aren't cooperating either, you don't put yourself under heavy rocks because what's going to happen? They're probably going to fall on you. They're not settled. So if you ask the question, what's the intent here? First of all, they identify Jesus the lamb as the cause of these things. And we're going to go more next week into why they're aware of these things and why they recognize the sun and the moon, both as signs in a Jewish mindset for the wrath of God. But the second thing is that they would rather put themselves in places where they would get themselves killed than recognize the wrath as a hint. They're on the wrong side. They're getting the message, but coming to the wrong conclusion. And note the point as well, the fact they're able to say this shows they're not dead. A lot of people are going to die from these things, without a doubt. But when we're asked about the fact that the world is shaking, notice it hasn't fallen apart yet. There's time being given here. Scary time, but time nonetheless. And if you're being put in a position where God at any time, which we believe he has the full capacity to do, to literally undo this universe with a word, second Peter chapter three style. The fact that these people are being jostled to get their attention is not only noting, and you'd say, oh, well, God's so cruel for inflicting this on the world. Go back four verses and ask me what they were doing to his people. The fact that God's shooting back when they fired first isn't yeah. immoral. And, and again, just my vent, but in the modern day, we seem to think that, oh, if you win a war, that means you're the bad guy. No, God having superior firepower and strength to end this in a moment is not immoral. He's just better. But note this point. If we're fighting a better opponent and losing, and he's still allowing you the liberty to speak back and make stupid observations like as if physically dying would separate you from God, just note the point, it might close the distance rather quickly, it needs to be understood for what it is. God is showing mercy to this planet by incrementally judging it. He is delaying ultimate judgment. He is being patient with people. Why? Because that's who he is. In power and in purpose, he is a judge. Yeah. But by nature as a person, he is merciful. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, God is not willing for any to perish but all to come to repentance, which by the way is a reference to Ezekiel 33 not the God of the Old Testament. We're talking about a king who can end this war anytime he wants, but the war isn't being fought for territory, it's for people. The people who have exhausted every last chance are the ones who are falling, but the people for which there is still hope, that is the
0: only reason this earth still exists. And you know, the ironic thing is, even in this display of God's wrath, seemingly with a capital W, we see also an amazing contrast of God's mercy. We talked about how in the opening here, how the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. It's not just that we are a privileged planet. If you've never watched that video, you need to. It it will give you a great lesson in earth appreciation, if you will. Uh, Just the, the amazing balance that's necessary for this planet to function, that we take for granted every day. But what happens when God in a sense, honors our request. And we say, God, we can get along without you. God says, fine, take a look at what life in the universe would be like without me to hold it together. What life would be like on planet Earth without me to hold it together. It's interesting how in the Psalms, there are repeated references to something that bugs some people scientifically. Uh, You know, for instance, in Psalm 93, we are told the earth is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Well, that doesn't mean that the earth isn't spinning or turning or that the earth doesn't shake. The Bible acknowledges, uh, you know, all of those things. But what it's saying is, is that God is the one who holds this planet together. So what happens when God doesn't hold the planet together? You get cataclysmic earthquakes. What happens when the one who displays his glory in the heavens is no longer showing us the beauty and splendor of the heavens, but the danger that surrounds us? all the time in a fallen universe. You know, a, a few years back in uh, 1994, uh, there was a great lesson in God appreciation that went down. It was when Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 slammed into the planet Jupiter. We got a picture of it that I'd like to show you up there. You see those little dots on the small, the lower right-hand side of Jupiter there? Comet Shoemaker-Levy came into Jupiter's gravitational attraction and scientists got really excited because they could see that not only had Jupiter's massive gravity captured this comet, but it was getting closer and closer to impact. And so as it got close to Jupiter, comet Shoemaker-Levy was torn apart by Jupiter's massive gravitational uh, field. It broke up into 22 pieces, astronomers estimate. Uh, fortunately for us, there was one of the uh, probes that we were sending out there to take pictures, and we were able to actually get pictures of when these fragments started to hit the atmosphere of Jupiter. And you can look that up online. But for our purpose here today, when Comet Shoemaker-Levy hit Jupiter, you see each of those smudge marks there? Each of those smudge marks is larger than planet Earth. That's the kind of damage and happened when Shoemaker-Levy hit Jupiter. It hit at a speed of one hundred and thirty-two thousand miles per hour. Now, if a comet fragment caused the incredible damage of ninety-two hundred square miles above the Ohio Valley back around three hundred A.D., and the Tunguska event uh, again leveled. Uh, the uh, 830 square miles of forest in Siberia, could you imagine what would happen if God allowed a large-sized asteroid or, dare I even say, a comet to hit the Earth? The thing we discover is we live in a cosmic shooting gallery, gang. Uh, You know, we talk about, you read these things about these near misses of these asteroids that go on, and they say, well, you know, we've got these telescopes and we're tracking these things, but the ones you don't see are the ones you gotta watch out for. Uh, The the, the problem with the asteroid impact detection is that it works as long as the asteroids aren't coming at us from the direction of the sun because then with our modern instruments, we're not able to see them until it's too late. Why haven't we seen more Tunguska events? Why haven't we seen more things like happened over the Ohio uh, River Valley? in uh, 300 AD, could it be that God has set up planets like Jupiter to take out these objects before they get to the inner planets and hit Earth? Could it be, when you take a look at the moon through a pair of binoculars, you see it literally pockmarked with craters, that God has set up the moon as this defensive area that has taken out so many of these things that have caused so much damage? And we take it for granted because God does it so well. What happens when God says, you want to get along in the universe without me? Have at it. Boy, it's going to be a real wake-up call from the Almighty. So the next time you look at the moon or the next time, you know, you look at the stars or you're able to find out from one of those astronomy websites where Jupiter is, count yourself privileged and blessed. Because God is saying to us right now, I'm looking after you. I'm taking care of you, whether you need it or not. The good shepherd of of the sheep, the one who watches over Israel, neither slumbers nor sleeps, he takes care of us. But in that picture of God's mercy, we also get a foretaste of what the wrath of God is going to be all about. God's saying, in a sense, you want to go it alone. Go it alone. But... I'm not sure you're going to like it when it happens. Sobering stuff indeed. Lord, thank you that you've given us in the book of Revelation such a heads up of, of how you work. And I, I thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. You continue to draw us to yourself through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the, the uh, amazing ministry and intervention of Jesus himself, who died for us to save us from the wrath that is to come. And the funny thing is, as daunting as intimidating as we've seen these physical manifestations of your wrath, your righteous wrath, separation from you forever, is nothing in comparison. But thank you that even as we talked about the, uh, the earth going into complete darkness as you hung on the cross, as you said, my God, my God, why hast you forsaken me? You bore that wrath so that we could be forgiven, that we could be recipients of your amazing grace. And Lord, my prayer is, if there are any within the sound of my voice who haven't said yes to your offer of forgiveness simply by putting their faith and their trust in what Jesus did when he died for them so they wouldn't be objects of wrath, I pray that they would make that decision to turn to you tonight, to discover why we use that term saved to describe being reconciled to you. Lord, we don't want to be lost forever. We want to be found in you and your love. Thank you for providing us this heavenly heads up of what's at stake. In Jesus' name, amen.